Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, with a message entitled, Look for Bible Teaching. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Josiah became king over Judah in about the year 640 BC. He inherited the kingdom first from his grandfather, who was the longest reigning king in the history of Israel. He reigned 52 years. But King Manasseh, although he reigned a long time, was also the most evil king the nation had ever seen. He led the people of Israel to worship idols. He sacrificed one of his own sons on an altar in the fire to a pagan god. He practiced witchcraft and divination, and he led the nation to be lawless so that the entire nation departed from the law of God. It was a mess. Manasseh also shed much innocent blood. The land was lawless. Human life had become cheap. The name of the Lord was all but forgotten. Indeed, the temple itself, which had been dedicated to the worship of the Lord, now housed a massive idol carved out to a pagan deity. 52 years of this, that's long enough to fundamentally alter a nation's trajectory. You know, after his death, Manasseh was succeeded by his son Ammon, and he only reigned two years and would have been as evil as his father, except that his servants conspired against him and murdered him. And that put young Josiah on the throne. The year was 640 BC. Josiah was a child. He was merely eight years old. That would have meant that to the most part, at least in the early years, the nation was governed by royal advisors. But it soon becomes clear that the child king has a heart for God. And by the time Josiah is 26 years old, he gives orders to repair the temple of the Lord and remove what is vile from it and restore it to its former glory. And so the king gathers money to restore the temple and sets one of the priests of the Lord, man's name is Hilkiah, and he oversees the money for the repairs of the temple. And then something marvelous happens. While they're cleaning out the temple, they discover a copy of the book of the law of the Lord. Now, many Bible scholars believe that that was actually a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, please understand, Josiah became king when the nation had been apostate well now for over 50 years, and all of the law of God had long been forgotten. You know, even people who worshiped the Lord did so in the way they saw fit. They did it out of ignorance. So imagine it this way. For over 55 years, all knowledge of the law of the Lord had been suppressed. And then for the next 18 years after that, even though King Josiah's heart is open to the Lord, he still didn't really understand the nature of God, nor did he understand what God demanded. But now after more than 70 years without the law of God, suddenly it's discovered. The priest Hilkiah then gives the law to his secretary, man's name is Shaphan, and it's Shaphan's job to then read the entire law of God to the king while he sits listening. Please understand that even while the king loved God, he still did not know what God demanded. And the Bible said that as the law was being read to him, the king tore his clothes as a sign of grief and despair. So why? Well, because in the law, he would have heard the Ten Commandments and God's demand that Israel worship no other God but him alone. And furthermore, he would have learned the blessings that come from keeping the law and also 
the horrible curses that would befall the nation if they were to abandon it. It's the curses that terrify Josiah. Indeed, the king then asks for key and leading people among them to go and inquire of God. You know, the king says, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that's written in it. I find those words fascinating. The words, for great is the wrath of the Lord. See, Josiah knew that day that the nation was in trouble because he had just heard the law read and no doubt it was being explained to him. And he's alarmed. He knows the nation stands at the brink of a great cataclysm. It's a disaster that would be brought on by the anger of God. Stop there for a moment. You know, because consider what this king said. Great is the wrath of the Lord. Yeah. There are only about four or five books in the entire Bible, did you know this, that don't mention the wrath of God. All the others make mention of God's wrath. That's interesting in itself because, as we all know, here we are in our day, more and more people who argue vehemently, even within the Christian church, that God never has wrath. He's only love, they say. And that's because, just like in the days of Josiah, the word of the Lord has been missing now for many years. I'll come back to that, but try to remember that here. Now, from the time of Josiah's finding of the law in about 622 BC, let's fast forward now to about 2,000 years forward. We come to the year AD 1382. It's now not in Israel, but let me take you to England, and for that matter, all of Europe during that time. In that time, the Roman church had taken the Bible from the hands of the common people. It was illegal to possess a Bible, and the Bible was not made available in the language of the people anyway. The only translation of the Bible was a translation that Jerome had made, and it was in Latin, a language that no one but the clergy spoke. The church had decided that only the church could interpret the Bible correctly. So most priests in that era had never read one page of the Bible for themselves in their whole lives. And if you went to church, and most people did, you would have received the sacraments in which it was believed that when you received the Eucharist, you were actually receiving the body of Jesus into yourself. And if you heard any preaching at all, it would be about church law. Now back to 1382 in England. Something wonderful had just happened. An English scholar by the name of John Wycliffe had just translated the Bible into English. The church was furious, for if the common people read it, they would soon see how many of its teachings were not biblical. Indeed, it was in 1411 that the Archbishop Arundel wrote to the Pope, and he said, This pestilent and wretched John Wycliffe of cursed memory, that son of the old serpent, endeavored by every means to attack the very faith and sacred doctrine of the Holy Church with the new translation of the scriptures into the mother tongue. That is, as soon as the people could read the Bible for themselves, it would wreck the faith of the Roman Church. Now, there's a confession, won't you think? So just a few years later, at the Council of Constance in 1415, the Roman Church declared that the late John Wycliffe was a heretic. By that time, Wycliffe was already dead, but the Church ordered that all his writings would be confiscated and burned, and furthermore, they ordered that his body should be dug up and his bones should be also burned. Wow. Now, from 1415, let me again take you forward now just over 100 years to a German castle, the castle of Wartburg. 
A powerful German prince by the name of Philip the Wise was protecting a monk in his castle because the order had been given to strip this monk of his Christian citizenship and anyone who killed him would not be prosecuted. And so this monk had become a hunted man and Philip the Wise had put him in his castle to protect him with nothing to do. And feeling overwhelmed in his exile, this monk began translating the Bible into the common language of German. But at this time, something was different. For one, Gutenberg in the German city of Mainz way back in 1440 had already invented the printing press. And now for the very first time, mass copies of anything could be made available in quantities so large that the entire nation could read it. And that Augustinian monk with time on his hands, well, his name was Martin Luther. And he translated the entire Bible into German and made it available to the press. First came the New Testament in 1522 and then the entire Bible. For the first time, the entire nation was eagerly awaiting their copy of a Bible. Again, as in the days of Josiah, the law of God had once more been found and it had exposed the wickedness of the day. Now, let's fast forward one more time and come to the present age. I have on more than one occasion interviewed people who were applying for pastoral and teaching positions in the church. And one of my most basic questions have always been, have you read through your entire Bible, every single word, and then how often have you done it? Once, five times, 30 times, please tell me. I have on more than one occasion seen potential candidates look genuinely confused. And when I pressed them hard, I found many who had been in pastoral and teaching ministries in the past had never read through the book even once. Well, what would occur? when preachers who have not mastered the scripture teach people who have not read the word several times over themselves, what then? What happens when people stream to church without a Bible in hand and quite frankly, you know, wouldn't have to reference it anyway if they had, what then? Then we're back in the days of Josiah and the days of Wycliffe and the days of Luther. The law of God and the word of God has been lost and must be found again. We're so grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple of recent notes. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you're an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that instead of living in confusion, Canadians from all generations coast to coast can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month, we want to send you as our free gift, Dr. John's brand new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. This week, I've been trying to help God's people who listen to a wide variety of Bible teachers to help identify the kind of Bible teaching they can trust. I think I can offer one piece of advice that will probably go a very long way. 
If you want to know if you can trust Bible teaching, there is no substitute for actually becoming a Bible reader yourself. And out of that, to begin to study the Bible for yourself. See, it's a great tragedy that after the battles that have been fought in the past, to make the Bible available to everyone, and after the history of a very great struggle to protect and preserve the sacred scripture, a struggle that many have paid for in blood, that in our day we would allow our Bibles, now available in massive quantities, simply to collect dust on the shelf. And let me suggest another almost equally horrifying tragedy. In a great many of churches across the country and across the continent, people gather to go to church and they don't bring their Bibles. I mean, sometimes it's because what they hear on Sunday doesn't require them to follow along in their Bible. But sometimes it's because they don't take the time anyway. So consider what the book of Acts tells us about the Jewish people in the Greek city of Berea. Acts 17, 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And that was the issue. You know, if Paul is teaching Jesus as the Messiah, well, these people went back home and they opened up their Old Testament and they carefully examined the texts that Paul had explained in their synagogues and looked to see if the conclusions that he drew from the scripture were indeed valid. Does a plain reading of our Bible lead us to the same conclusion as Paul, or is he abusing the text? That's the question the Bereans asked. And so let me suggest a number of ways in which all of God's people can become wise and discerning regarding the Bible teaching they're receiving. First, become a Bible reader and a studier on your own. Look, if this book is God's word to you, you are required to learn it and master it. Everyone, every lay person, this is God's will for you. You can read the Bible through cover to cover. I know many of you are going to say, I I'm just really not a reader. But can you read something for 15 minutes every day? And if you can, and if you give yourself to it, you can read your entire Bible through in one year. You know, back to the Bible, we can provide you with a Bible reading plan. It's going to help you to go through the whole Bible in a year. And if you can't do it 15 minutes a day, then take two years. There's absolutely no reason why every single believer, and even unbelievers, can't read this book, the best-selling book in the history of the planet, why you can't read through it at least four or five times and many more times in your lifetime. See, that's one thing alone, and that will give you discernment over all that you hear. Second, insist on something the ancient theologians used to call, and it's a Latin term, the term sensus planner. Simple. It means the plain sense of the text. Don't go looking to a hidden spiritualized meaning of any text. Don't imagine that without your Bible teacher, you'd never get the idea. Anyone with appropriate reading skills ought to be able to understand their Bible. Ask yourself this question. When I listen to the Bible teacher, can I go home and locate the text from which he has been preaching, yes or no? That is, what Bible text was he helping me to understand? Now look, there are times to do topical Bible teaching. There are times when we take a topic that the Bible speaks about frequently, and then to bring all the texts together that speak on that issue. 
You know, for instance, there are times to talk about, you know, what does the Bible say about the attributes of God or about faith and so on. But to that, let me add a couple of vital points. First, our main diet when we receive Bible teaching should not be what does the preacher teach about, and then you fill in the blank, but rather what does the text teach about? Not what is relevant to me, but what is relevant to God and his word. What has he decided to communicate to us, not what would I like to hear? And you can only get a sense of that if you're regularly reading your Bible. And for that reason, all of us should start to get the taste in our mouths for regular expositional Bible teaching. So what does that mean? Quite simply, it means preaching through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, simply following the Bible through the way that it was written, helping to explain what we find there, and then helping the hearer to make application to his or her own life. Now, that's been the pattern for us here at Back to the Bible since the days of our founding by Theodore Epp. But it's also been the pattern of almost all Bible messages found in Christian pulpits for the first 500 years of the existence of the Christian church. Christians were trained. They shouldn't care a whit or a spit about what the preacher thinks about anything. Rather, care only that the preacher has spent enough time in the actual pages of Scripture so that he understood the context of a Bible passage that he preaches, knows the nuances of its grammar, the wording of the text, and that he does his best to understand the historical context of a passage and can explain it in such a way that the hearer can understand from their own Bible reading and know how to make application to their own lives. As I've said, for the first 500 years, that's the only kind of preaching you'd ever hear in pulpits. And then as corruption settled into the church, all sorts of things replaced the verse-by-verse explanation of the text. Liturgy, superstition, teachings that were popular in the age, People were hungry for it. On and on it goes. And then we come to the time I had already mentioned, the time of the Reformation when people were translating the Bible and putting it back into the hands of the common person. And so again, preachers were to simply read the text to their people and help them understand and give them the keys to know what God was saying. Let me tell you a story I personally love. It's about the great 16th century preacher, John Kelvin. In 1538, for a number of reasons, Kelvin had been expelled from Geneva and was forced to leave the city. He could no longer minister and preach from his pulpit. And then in 1541, he was invited back and he, after more than two years, was allowed once more to stand behind his pulpit and preach the scripture. And what's fascinating is that he doesn't stand up and begin to say, as we might expect, it's great to be back. Instead, and apparently this is exactly how it happened, Kelvin had left a marker in his Bible at the very place where he had last left off more than two years ago. And without even a word, he simply opened the scripture to the next text and began to expound the scripture, explaining the next verses and chapters that were before him and explaining its meaning. And that's because he knew what all faithful preachers have ever known. Look, preachers aren't the apostles or the prophets. They haven't received the revelation from God from the mouth of God. Rather, they've learned the revelation of God from the writings of the prophets and the apostles. And so if they're faithful at all, 
they will not teach their own discoveries, but rather the discoveries of the apostles and the prophets. You know, 2 Timothy is the last book the Apostle Paul wrote, probably written just before his execution. You can hear in reading the book that Paul now knows that his life's journey is coming to an end. And as an apostle and as a man who was directly received the revelation of God's word, what should he write now, knowing that the era of the apostles and the prophets was soon coming to an end? And so Paul writes Timothy, his faithful disciple, and the man who is called to lead and preach after the apostles are gone. So let's read what Paul tells him in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2. So then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Hope you caught that. That which you have heard from me, the stuff that I taught by direct revelation from Jesus himself, those things I received from heaven. Notice Paul doesn't say, look, Timothy, look for your own revelations. Rather, he says, teach what I have taught you. Teach the scripture. And so later on in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth, that is the truth of the Bible, and wander off into myths. And for the rest of us, How can we know whether we're wandering from the truth? And the answer is, when we depart from a verse-by-verse study of Scripture, we're already departing. Thanks, John. You know, I know what characterizes the Bible teaching of Back to the Bible Canada, and generally your own, is that it's expositional. Is there any room for any other Bible teaching styles? Of course there is. I I don't want to say that, you know, if it's not expositional, it's not biblical, because there are good topical sermons that do reflect accurately what the Scripture is teaching. I'm going to say this, however, that when our diet is steadily on topical preaching, over over time, we're going to find ourselves less and less in tune with what the Bible does teach. I mean, there's something about verse-by-verse exposition that disciplines the mind and disciplines our thinking to think along the lines of Scripture. So, topical preaching sometimes. Thanks, John. I think that helps. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Every week in doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join In Doubt on air on the indoubt.ca website, the Indoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. 
We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about Endowed or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit endowed.ca.